From the Heritage Foundation, this is Heritage Explains. In the 1950s, Dr. Jonas Salk invented a vaccine against one of the most dangerous childhood diseases to ever afflict American children, polio. Short for paralytic poliomyelitis, polio had the potential to cause nerve damage, permanent disability, and death. Dr. Salk's invention saved many, many lives, and the most notable part of the story, he had the opportunity to patent his invention and potentially become a very rich man. But he didn't. He felt that it was not his right to do so. Dr. Salk joins the ranks of people like Albert Einstein, Levi Strauss, and many others who all share one thing in common, great Americans who are members of the Jewish faith. And yet, in the wake of the October 7th Hamas attacks on the state of Israel, the strange phenomenon of anti-Jewish sentiment, referred to as anti-Semitism, seems to be rearing its ugly head in ways that disturb many Americans. Here to help us understand what is going on and why it matters is Heritage Research Fellow in the Center for Education Policy, Jason Bedrick. Jason Bedrick, welcome to Heritage Explains. Thank you so much for having me. So how did you get involved in education policy, in anti-Semitism, in public policy? Tell us a little about yourself and how you wound up here. I got involved in education policy really starting in college when I was doing a paper on, I had a public policy class where I had to do a paper on any public policy area I wanted. I'd always been interested in education. I had been fortunate to be born to parents who could afford to send me to, afford to live in a school district with a high quality public school, although there was no high school. It was a very small community. And even though my family's Jewish, they sent me to a Catholic high school. And I was very fortunate that I was able to afford that. And it always seemed to me that the American dream was premised on equality of opportunity, but that if you didn't have equal access to a high quality school, there was no equality of opportunity and and you really didn't have the American dream. And that's what first motivated me to get into education policy where I primarily at the time focused on, on school choice for the last, really for the last two decades. This last week, two weeks has really hit home watching what's going on on college campuses and how they've been responding to the situation in Israel. For years, I've been among those warning about critical race theory and diversity, equity and inclusion, how these ideas and these programs are often masking 
anti-Semitism and allowing anti-Semitic ideas to flourish on campus. I think a lot of people in the last couple of weeks have woken up to how that is a really pressing threat in academia and in and uh, throughout uh, Western societies. I think when we talk about anti-Semitism, in some ways, it's one of these things that can be a little bit hard to describe or a little bit hard to explain, especially for those of us who are not of the Jewish faith. Can you sketch out what is anti-Semitism? How do we recognize it in society and within these institutions? Sure. I think first I'll start with what it's not. It's not a mere dislike of Jewish people, and it's not a criticism of the government of Israel. Every government is open for legitimate criticism. So merely having a negative opinion about the state of Israel or its current government or anything like that does not make one an anti-Semite. I think that the best test for whether something is anti-Semitic or not is from Natan Sharansky, the great human rights advocate and refusenik who spent years in the Soviet gulag because of his political views uh, and now serves in the Israeli government. Natan Sharansky says it's, it comes down to the three Ds, double standards, demonization, and delegitimization. So the first D, demonization, when the world's only Jewish state is being demonized. It's when its actions are blown out of all sensible proportion, when there's comparisons between what Israel is doing to what the Nazis did, when Palestinian refugee camps are des described as you know, like Auschwitz. These are not legitimate criticisms of Israel. And that's where it morphs into anti-Semitism. And when Jews are basically dehumanized in the process of criticizing them. The second D would be the test of double standards. So when criticism of Israel is applied selectively, when Israel is, for example, at the United Nations, singled out over and over and over for supposed human rights abuses, when uh, other states like China, Iran, Cuba, Syria, and so on, when their human rights abuses, which are far, far worse, are ignored, then you have a situation of double standards and, and anti-Semitism. Likewise, on college campuses, when Israel is repeatedly singled out by organizations for engaging in behavior that is not criticized when other states do it, or when other, especially when those other states are doing things that are far worse, then that fails the test of double standards. The third test is delegitimization. When Israel's fundamental right to exist is denied alone among all the peoples of the world, that's delegitimization. Especially you'll hear people say, well, you know, I don't think that there should be any state that has a religious or ethnic component. They should all be like the United States. But they don't criticize England right, where the Anglican church is the official church. They don't criticize the 50 plus states in the world where Islam is the official religion or the dozens of states where Christianity is the official religion. It is only the one Jewish state that they seem to be harping on over and over again. That fails the test of double standards and delegitimization. You just said over the last two weeks, that the conversation yeah. seems to have shifted. It seems to have changed. Can you talk about that change? Yeah, look, just taking a step back, I think when people woke up on October 7th and saw 
what had happened in Israel, they realized that these ideas that are on our college campuses about what decolonization means, um, about, uh, you know, what, uh, settler colonialism, what these concepts actually mean were playing out over in Israel. Uh, and, and as horrific as what happened there is, I think what was particularly eye-opening is like, all right, we already know that there's ISIS in the world. We already know that there's Al-Qaeda in the world. We already know that there are terrorists who are willing to murder civilians in gruesome and horrific ways in order to achieve their political ends. That, I don't think, was particularly surprising. What was surprising was how many people who live and breathe the freedom in the West were not only excusing, but cheering on the violence over there. When Students for Justice in Palestine at Tufts University, one of the prestigious universities in this country, issues a statement calling the Hamas terrorists who had just commit mass murder, gang rape, who were taking hostages, doing unspeakable committing unspeakable atrocities and they called them freedom fighters and liberationists and described the fallen Hamas terrorists as martyrs and praised them for quote, the creativity necessary to take back stolen lands. I think that became a wake up call for Americans that something is not right on our college campuses where this idea of decolonizing, the idea that Jews in their homeland are some li- somehow colonizers, that, that really the wandering Jew has no homeland, right? For so many years, Jews were told to go back to that part of the world, go back to Judea, go back to Israel, go back to Palestine when it was uh, under the British mandate. Now, Jews are told to leave that area, even though Jews have lived in Israel for more than 3,000 years, long before Muhammad walked the earth. And, but Israel is somehow considered, the Jews in Israel are somehow considered other. They're considered not to be the, not to have any legitimate claim to the land because that is the myth that has been spread throughout the Arab world. And that these Western ideas, these Western progressive ideas of decolonization, they make things very black and white. And they have decided that even though the majority of Jews in Israel are Sephardi or Mizrahi, meaning that they were primarily from the Middle East, many of them actually can trace their existence in Israel back centuries. It doesn't matter because some of them came from Europe. This must be some sort of European colonizer endeavor. And therefore, they're the bad guys. And because Arabs tend to have darker skin, even though many could pass as, as white, then those must be the good guys. And so violence against the so-called oppressor is totally permitted, even if it's directed at a civilian population. You've heard this language that there are no Israeli civilians because they're all settlers, right? So these sorts of ideas that have been percolating on college campuses for a long time, I think a lot of Americans are now waking up to what's going on. It just seems to run counter to everything we think we understand about the political order. You would think that with Jews being a clear religious and ethnic minority within the United States, within the world, that 
they would not run afoul of the progressive left the way that they have. What do you think philosophically is going on there? Well, I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that Americans are very parochial. And especially this is the case on the American left. They think of themselves as being uh, so sophisticated and cosmopolitan, but they like to boil everything down into categories that they understand. And they see everything through the the civil rights lens, and especially even more than the civil rights lens. Now that's even passe. The critical race theory lens puts everybody in either the oppressor or oppressed category. And in American terms, we think of whites as oppressors. We, I'm, I'm talking about the progressives and people of color as being the oppressed. And so Jews in the United States are coded as white, maybe even like extra white. And Arabs, especially post 9-11, are coded as of color. And so they take that lens, they then apply it to the Israel situation, and they say, oh, okay, it's very easy for us to distinguish who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. I think conservatives have a much more realistic appreciation of the situation and in all its complexity. And uh, I think conservatives also recognize that it's never just about the Jews, right? For the national socialists, right, they were coming after the Jews, but they were also trying to dominate all of Europe. For the international Soviet socialists at the Soviet Union, they also persecuted the Jews, Jewish communities were destroyed. Jews were forbidden. This is Everybody knows about what the Nazis did. Unfortunately, it's not taught in the United States what the Soviet Union did, forbidding Jews from, from running synagogues and other religious institutions, imprisoning rabbis who were caught holding services or, or spreading Torah. And they tried very hard to secularize them stealing Jewish children and putting them in the military so that they could essentially be secularized. The Soviets did all this side of stuff, but the Soviets also, it starts with ethnic minorities like the Jews, but they had this world domination in mind as well. Uh, likewise, in the Middle East, uh, Jews are enemy number one, but it's not going to stop with Israel, right? They want a global caliphate. Uh, Israel is the little Satan. America is the great Satan. And it starts with Israel, but the West is next. Uh, so really, it, it comes down to civilization versus barbarism. And Jews, as they often are, are the canary in the coal mine. And when you see in a society that anti-Semitism starts to percolate and people start to come after the Jews, this is a sign that something is going horribly wrong. And it's not just something that's going horribly wrong in the Middle East. It's something that's going horribly wrong on college campuses in the West. And these folks are now graduating. They're going out. They're finding jobs. Jay Green and I just did a report looking at former campus radicals. Where do they end up? 40% of them end up either in K-12 education or higher education. So these former radicals are now indoctrinating your children. This is something that conservatives have to take very seriously. At the center of any truly conservative enterprise has to be a concern with education because, as G.K. Chesterton put it, education is passing on the soul of a society to the next generation. And if we care about you know, the American soul, we have to be concerned about who is teaching our children and what they are teaching our children.
You wrote in January this year an article for Heritage called Here's How the Federal Government is Funding Anti-Semitism with Your Tax Dollars. What were you writing about there? Yeah, I was looking primarily at two different areas, one in foreign policy and one in domestic policy. When it comes to foreign policy, a lot of it is with this organization called UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees. There are two organizations that the United Nations runs dealing with refugees, one for the Palestinians and one for everybody else in the entire world. And the goal, so speaking of double standards, the goal of all the other refugee situations is to find permanent placement for these refugees. Uh, but when it comes to the Palestinian refugees, the goal is to keep them essentially as like a bargaining chip to use uh, against Israel. Uh, all of the other, they, they actually even use two different definitions. When it comes to other refugees, it's really just the people who left, who were kicked out of an area or had to flee an area because of war or famine or what have you. When it comes to, it's not their descendants, but when it comes to the Palestinians, their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren are all refugees, even though they may have been living in some place for decades and for generations. That doesn't matter. And these UNRWA schools that are teaching uh, children in Palestinian areas in Gaza and in uh, Judea and Samaria, it's also called the West Bank, have over and over, we have found that their textbooks have virulent anti-Semitic teachings, comparing Jews to apes and pigs, encouraging violence against Jews, and maps that don't have Israel at all, that, that just have Palestine. Our federal dollars are going over to fund this United Nations organization and end up funding the teaching of anti-Semitism. And also a lot of these UNRWA buildings, it's been discovered, are actually used by Hamas as weapons caches or as places where they launch rockets from in the hopes that Israel will fire back, it hit a school, and then they score a media propaganda win. Domestically, it's uh, a lot of it is in these Middle East and North Africa or what's called MENA studies programs, which a lot of them get funding through Title VI and Title VI of the Higher Education Act. And this program was originally started during the Cold War because we wanted to have people that were familiar with other cultures, that were studying foreign languages, so that we would have citizens that would then go into the State Department, for example, speaking Russian with an understanding of Russian culture so that when we were, you know, when we had analysts that were seeing what's going on in Russia, we would have a better understanding of what was going on. Unfortunately, so many of these programs, instead of cultivating patriotic American citizens who have a broader understanding of different regions of the world, when you combine you know, these types of programs with the general far left, progressive, critical race theory type ideas on college campuses, what you end up producing is students who have an anti-American worldview and are much more sympathetic with these cultures around the world, whether it's China or various nations in the Middle East. And even though Title VI requires that these programs reflect diverse perspectives and a wide range of views, there have been a number of studies that have shown that the programming on college campuses are overwhelmingly 
anti-Israel, really are only showing one perspective and are essentially indoctrinating these students in one particular point of view. In some cases, they're even these programs, they're using tax dollars to pay convicted terrorists like Jalil Muntakim uh, or Muhammad al-Kurd or even Angela Davis, who was on the FBI's most wanted list, right? So convicted terrorists are coming on to American college campuses and they're getting tax dollars to further indoctrinate college students. And these sorts of programs have to stop. So for those of us who are not on a college campus, Americans who are concerned about these trends, what can we do to address them? I think one thing is we need to speak to our elected officials and let them know that this is something that we care about. I think at a certain point, really, conservatives need to make this a litmus test issue, right? If we are going to preserve American culture and society and preserve our freedoms, then we need to have policymakers that are taking the issue of education seriously and that are willing uh, to defund the radical left on college campuses and in, in K-12. And I think the first place to start is these DEI programs and and these Title VI programs. The Title VI programs, either they should come into compliance and offer a truly diverse range of views, or they should lose their funding. And when it comes to the DEI issue, uh, and Jay Green, my colleague uh, Jay Green at the Heritage Foundation has done fantastic work um, pointing out all of the problems with DEI. Uh, he's got a whole series of, of studies on this. Um, but... Uh, this is not an issue of academic freedom because the DEI bureaucracies on college campuses work outside of the system, right? They're not, uh, it's not just what professors are teaching in their classroom. These are essentially bureaucracies that are enforcing a certain ideology, an, ideolo an, an ideological orthodoxy on college campuses without contributing anything whatsoever. As a matter of fact, what was something that Jay shows is that one of the arguments for them is that you need DEI to help with racial tensions on campus, but it actually, it seems to work in the opposite direction. The more DEI staffers you have, the more students are trained to be looking for microaggressions and things like that, the more radicalized that they become politically. And so the lower those college students rate the state of race relations on campus. So instead of ameliorating racial issues, they're actually stoking racial animus. These organizations, these bureaucracies contribute nothing but cause lots of problems. Problems. College is expensive enough. We should, in, in state universities, state policymakers should say, we are not funding this stuff anymore. If you universities are spending X million dollars on these bureaucracies, we're going to cut you. Clearly, you don't need that money. We're going to cut you by X million until you get rid of them. We're going to keep doing that over and over again. And just everyday citizens, if you're alumni of these college campuses and you see what's going on and you don't like it, Feel free to write to the president, deans, provosts, what have you. Let your voice be heard. If your donors stop giving money to the college campuses, your dollars are much better spent someplace else. And it's time for major reform on these college campuses, but it's not going to happen unless conservatives and other Americans who care deeply about the future of this country speak up because the inmates are currently running the asylums 
And that is going to continue until they hear from us and actually start acting like the adults in the room again. Thank you to Jason Bedrick for his contributions to this episode. You can find more of his work at heritage.org and you can follow him on X at Jason Bedrick. If you're new to the show and want to know more about what is going on in our universities, I highly recommend listening to last week's episode with Jay Green on DEI bureaucracies on American college campuses. It's a very eye-opening conversation. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, send them our way at heritageexplains at heritage.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It's written and produced by Mark Guiney, Lauren Evans, and John Pop.